Coming up, the NFL Draft is on the horizon as the Shield gears up for another three-day, seven-round event in Cleveland. The Padres end a thrilling series and come from behind fashion. The A's can't kick the extra points to extend their winning streak to 14. And the Braves offense did what in the doubleheader versus Arizona? Plus, break up the Knicks as the NBA and NHL seasons are in the home stretch. I'll bring you up to speed on the latest playoff races in both sports. And the Kentucky Derby is back where it belongs. All of that to get into and much more on this edition of the J Reels Podcast. But first, this message. Hey everybody, J Reels here to share a friendly reminder. If this is your first time getting an opportunity to listen to what it is that I have to say about what's going on in the world of sports, welcome aboard. Or if you've been a long-time listener, not only do I welcome you back, but I want to advise you all to please subscribe, rate, and review the J Reels Podcast on wherever you listen to podcasts. Of course, this pod is on all platforms. On Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, Player FM, even Amazon Music. I not only host this endeavor, but I independently produce, edit, and write what you read and listen to. So your participation is vital to not only support the podcast, but increase the visibility, fuel the growth and expansion of this platform to those who aren't familiar with it. You could also share the show or a particular episode by posting on social media as well. The purpose of this is quite simple, people. To generate interest to those who aren't aware or know of this podcast, especially the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, blogger, sports writer, studio host, etc., as I want them to share their experience on the field, the court, the press box, broadcast booth, or in the studio with me, so then I could flip that to you guys and gals to deliver top-notch, fast-paced, entertaining, informative, incredible sports talk unlike any other, for everyone to listen and enjoy and to keep coming back for more on a week-in, week-out basis. You could also go to my website at www.jreels.com for more information about yours truly, the podcast, archive shows, etc. I appreciate you all for your support. Thank you very much for listening and believing in me. I hope you come back for more as your trusted source on everything that's happening in the world of sports. So with that said, the J Reels podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December, but what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I gotta call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, my good people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Wishing all is well in your world, that your spirits are up, feeling fantastic as we hit the final Monday of April with our sights set on the month of May just five days away. Jeez. Where the hell's the time go? Can you believe it? Before you know it, we'll be discussing how it's the unofficial beginning of summer with Memorial Day on deck. So get after it, my good people, because make sure you don't want to wish these days away. One thing we never get back is time. Do what you love. Get your affairs in order. Make peace with those in your circle. Take personal inventory daily and do not take anything or anyone for granted while we're alive, breathing, and on God's green earth, as I like to say. So with that little positive message aside... I know you're here for some spirited analysis and opinions as I inform you on all that's happening in the sports universe as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host J Reels. For my first timers, welcome aboard. 
And for those who have been banging with me for now 191 episodes, I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, April the 26th in the year of our Lord, 2021. The J Reels What's the Deal segment, what to expect on this podcast is as follows. The races are starting to heat up on the ice, especially in the Eastern Conference and the division as well, as we're down to single digits of games to be played in the National Hockey League. So I'll get to everything that's happening there, especially with my Islanders who've had a very tough weekend and now have an even bigger week ahead as they have the Capitals tomorrow and the Rangers later on in the week. Also in the NBA, as their season starts to dwindle down to its precious few, Kevin Durant is back with 33 points in his return against Phoenix yesterday, but they are far from the hottest team in New York, as believe it or not, the New York Knicks. Can you imagine? Knicks fans have been jumping up and down and rejoicing for the last couple of months. So I'll go through the association, their meteoric rise in the East, and get you caught up on what's happening there. The NFL draft is Thursday, so the football fan can rejoice as it takes over just a little bit. Oh, the spotlight from the other sports this coming weekend. I'll dive into that and other news and notes throughout the Shield. College football, as they're in the early stages of looking into playoff expansion, which for me personally, I'm glad that's going to be the case. How they're going to work that out remains to be seen, but I'll touch on that. As well as everything that's happening in Major League Baseball, the Padres had an enormous series victory this past weekend against the Dodgers. Cole versus Bieber on Saturday. Jacob DeGrom, what else is new? DeGromanent on Friday night with his stellar performance. The A's not able to extend their 13-game winning streak. The Braves offense goes on vacation. Lots throughout the major leagues to get into, as well as the Kentucky Derby is back right where it belongs this coming Saturday to kick off the triple crown of horse racing. I'll get into all that, the MMA and then some, plus my hero and zero of the week. There are so many different directions that I could go to start off this podcast, and I guess the best way for those here in New York, and I got to give the Nick fans out there, it's due because what they've been able to do here, especially over the course of the last 14 to 17 days to string along nine consecutive victories. Listen, is this going to bring you back to the Ewing days of the 90s when they were able to get to the top of the Eastern Conference and although made two NBA finals, but fall short of winning that elusive championship Can't compare to those days by any stretch, but considering the start of the millennium and what they've been able to accomplish over the last 20 years, they've pretty much been close to nothing. If you want to look at the one 2012-2013 season when they won 54 games, won a round against the Celtics, and then lost in six games to the Indiana Pacers, that's pretty much the only thing that you could cheer about here over the last two decades. But right now, if you're a Knicks fan... One thing in sports, you always love to take that magic carpet ride of the unexpected. If you recall last month, I was talking about my beloved Georgetown Hoyas as they steamrolled through the Big East, beating Villanova in the process, and then Creighton for the Big East Championship. When you get those unexpected runs, those unexpected victories, wins that just really come out of nowhere, and it makes you reinvigorate yourself as a fan, considering Georgetown hadn't done pretty much anything over the last 15 years of note, for that matter. And pretty much the same here with the Knicks. And the first thing you got to look at here is not only this run that they've been on, nine in a row, we know about coach Tom Thibodeau coming in here and pretty much putting his fingerprints not only on this team, but the organization has the fan base flying. I mean, anywhere you go, everybody's talking about the Knicks. Pretty much there isn't anything else to talk about here in New York sports. The Yankees have been down. The Mets have been, eh. Nobody's talking about the hockey. 
If you want to get wrapped up into the Jets later on this week with the number two pick, you can. But it is all about the blue and orange that's being played in Madison Square Garden, 33rd and 8th, where the Knicks fan is as giddy as they could possibly be. And understandably so. Does this mean they're going to go on to play in a conference final? Does this mean that they're going to go on and be in an NBA final? Right now on April 26th, I would think not. But you have to enjoy this ride. You have to enjoy what's been taking place. You only hope that this could be a springboard for things to come in the future, not only with the coach in tow, but with a guy like Julius Randle, who I get that all the MVP consideration, if you're into that, is going to be wrapped up in whether your name is James Harden, who has been out the last couple of weeks here and will pretty much be out of contention for the MVP. Whether your name is Steph Curry and the display that he's been able to put forth offensively over the last pretty much month and a half, considering he had 11 straight games with 30 points or more, considering his age, I believe he eclipsed Kobe Bryant at that mark. He already has shot 85 three-pointers for what that's worth here in the month of April, which is the most ever in a month for an NBA player. You have another guy in Joel Embiid right down the turnpike who was in MVP form before he got injured. And since he's been back, he's been in and out, up and down. Hasn't been his 100% dominant self as he was earlier this year. And the one guy who is not going to get all the accolades, yes, he did make an all-star team this year. But at 24 points a game and a little bit over 10 rebounds and 6 assists, why not Julius Randle be in consideration for the league MVP this year? I mean, LeBron's not going to be a part of those festivities considering he's been on the show for the last, what, month and change. Forget about Anthony Davis, although he's back in the lineup and the Lakers have been struggling with both of those guys in the lineup. But even with AD back, slowly but surely, the Lakers have been stumbling, bumbling, fumbling here throughout the course of the last six weeks or so. The Bucks, although they have played much better in beating the Sixers over the weekend back-to-back, But Giannis, who is the two-time reigning MVP of the league, he's going to be nowhere near among the top few players in the league as far as getting that particular award is concerned. And I'm not saying that right now you have to give it to Julius Randle. Nobody is saying that, but his name deserves to be on the ballot to be one of the top three players in the league this year, which is, when you think about it, is as mind-boggling as it could be. And we all know his backstory a high draft pick by the Lakers coming out of Kentucky where a lot of people thought he could be this dominant big man. And in that first year where he broke his leg, he did not seem to get his career on track after that. And even with a stop in New Orleans and now here in New York, yes, he did put up the points last year, but for a team that certainly did wasn't going to go anywhere. And then now this year, a lot of people thought that this was going to be a good player putting up stats on a bad team. Well, with the right system and the right coach, and some role players around them, whether you're R.J. Barrett, whether you're even Derrick Rose who came over in a trade earlier this year, Emmanuel Quickly has been a guy that's superseded anything of what the organization could imagine considering they drafted Obi Toppin where a lot of people expected him to do big things and he has been a bust up until this point. But you got to give it up to what they've been able to do here and even though, not to throw cold water on this by any stretch, but they have a very difficult six-game road trip, which is they're going to embark on later this week, which starts off in Houston, but then they go to Memphis, Denver, Phoenix, and then both LA teams before coming home 
to wrap up the season. So that is going to be a litmus test for this team. Knowing where they are in the standings, they currently have the number four seed in the Eastern Conference, which is great because that means you're going to be able to host a first round series. Come May 19th, I believe they're going to increase the attendance when it comes to here in New York State. Right now, I believe it's what, 10%? By May 19th, it's going to be 25%. So even though 1,400 people or 1,900 people and then come the middle of next month, it's going to be up to about 4,000 people. It's going to sound like 400,000 because these Knicks fans are dying, literally thirsting for a chance to root for their team in their building when it comes to either a game one or even a game three for that matter in the postseason where they have not seen in eight years. And even with that road trip, that's forthcoming and knowing that the challenges that lie ahead the Knicks are certainly not only just in good position to make it to the postseason but you would think that although it's going to be some tough waters to navigate to try to keep themselves out of the top eight where you have a bunch of teams that have been surging and playing pretty well one team including the Washington Wizards they've won eight in a row they've been the second hottest team in the NBA but they are way down in the standings so the Knicks don't really have to worry about them but you want to at least hold serve here if you're a Knicks fan to make it to the end of the season as the number four seed, hopefully to play the Atlanta Hawks, a team that has played very well this year and made a few trades at the deadline to kind of fortify their team to make themselves relevant in an Eastern Conference. But with Trey Young on the shelf with an ankle sprain for how long, who knows? But the Knicks have put themselves in prime position here to make some noise in the postseason, at least for one round, and who knows? Could there be a matchup in store with the Brooklyn Nets in round two? Or even the Sixers, for that matter? Because the Nets, as of right now, they've been able to jump ahead in the Eastern Conference to where they have the top spot in the East, which would mean, not to look too far down the road, if everything holds suit to the way it is today in the standings, after a first-round victory to whomever the Knicks play, they would probably, in all likelihood, play the Brooklyn Nets in a round two. And how exciting would that be in this neck of the woods because a lot of people couldn't even predict in their crystal balls whether the Knicks would make it to the postseason, but to have a second-round seven-game series against the Nets in the process? Man, that would be newsworthy and a buzz throughout the city that I can't remember ever happening in my time living in New York, and that's pretty much my whole life. I remember the Knicks and Nets played in 2004, big whoop. The Nets swept the Knicks in four games. That Knicks team, you probably couldn't even think of how many Knicks were on that team at that time. What, Tim Thomas, Stephon Marbury, I believe Kurt Thomas was on the team then, or maybe he wasn't, but again, it was a very forgettable Knicks team. Just as I said earlier, the two decades that have spanned this century so far have been more forgettable moments than unforgettable moments. But the Knicks and Nets squaring off in a conference semifinal would be juicy, to say the least. So we'll see where this Knicks team goes. And to think, I am not a Knicks fan. I can't stand the Knicks. But we all know they're a cornerstone franchise in this league. And people may laugh at that right now. People may look at that and be like, the Knicks, ha, please. But yeah, believe it or not, they are. They're one of the original teams that have entered this league going back to 1946. And granted, they only have two championships 
And the last one was, what, 48 years ago. And their tradition may not be as deep as the Boston Celtics, as deep as the Minneapolis and LA Lakers, as deep as some of the other franchises in the sport, whether it's the Chicago Bulls, whether it's the Detroit Pistons. Uh, You can go on down the list with some of the other teams that have played here. And even of recent vintage, if you want to even say the San Antonio Spurs, which was a team that was in the ABA, for those who remember that league, before it folded, before the 1976 season. So you have a lot of the teams that are in that lofty perch for franchises or organizations that have had so much success and are jewels throughout the association. And the Knicks seem to fall close to the bottom, if not at the bottom, based on their ineptitude, especially when we've entered this 21st century. But at the same time, nobody's going to dispute the legendary players and teams of the past, albeit the very well-distant past. But when you think of Red Holtzman, Clyde Frazier, Bill Bradley, Dave DeBusher, Jerry Lucas on the later teams, Earl Monroe, go on down the list. And even later on, as I mentioned earlier, going back to the halcyon days of the 90s with Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Charles Oakley, etc. And the building itself, we all know the world's most famous arena, Madison Square Garden. It's good to see relevance in New York to have that team play the way they have been playing this year, underachieving, lunch pail mentality, roll up your sleeves, down and dirty, unlike the team that plays across the river where it's glitz and glam, high-flying, a lot of crossover dribbles, attacks at the basket, three points, and unfortunately for the Net fan, a lot of games missed in the process. So we'll see how the Nets start to shake down, and I'll get to them in a second, but I figured to kick off with the Knicks here, to give the Nick fan their due, to give the Knicks their due, because for the three plus years that I've been doing this podcast, I can't even recall one mention of the New York Knicks. And I figure because of their winning streak, because of their ascent in the conference and what they've been able to do here, I kick off with them to give them their just due. And even though the road is going to look a little bumpy with that West Coast trip, but they put themselves in very good position here in the East. And let's see how far they could take their regular season to get themselves ready for the postseason. And the Nets I'll mention quickly only because Kevin Durant was back in the lineup. He suffered that injury in Miami, that left eye contusion where he put up 33 points, I believe in 28 minutes against the Phoenix Suns yesterday. And the Suns are in town again today as they'll play the Knicks tonight on a back-to-back here from Brooklyn to Manhattan. But the Nets, all you're hoping for right now is to get healthy. Kyrie's been in the lineup. Hopefully Durant will be a mainstay in the starting rotation here from now until the end of the season because with what took place in Milwaukee over the weekend with the Sixers, right now the Brooklyn Nets are at 41 wins and 20 losses. Only one game separates them in the loss column, but a game and a half in the standings to where the Brooklyn Nets, if they were to hold home court, and put themselves in a position to pretty much have that advantage, at least through the Eastern Conference playoffs. It'll be a positive for them, knowing that you have the rookie coach in Steve Nash. We don't know what type of lineup we're going to see come May, June, and July with the players on the men, such as James Harden with his hamstring. We don't know what Kevin Durant's going to be on a day-to-day basis. Kyrie... You would think that once game one tips off, he's going to be there each and every day 
throughout the rest of the postseason. And that's one thing I didn't mention about Randall as far as him being an, an MVP, if I could just digress to the Knicks for a second. He has played in 60 of 61 games this year. Whereas we all know a lot of people, either load management or injuries, they haven't been able to be on the court. So that's another reason why Julius Randle should be in consideration for the MVP because he has been there pretty much every day. But now back to the Nets. So it's all about May, June, and July for them. We know that. And even if they don't get the first seed and have home court throughout the East, they'll be able to win a game seven in Philadelphia, you would think, based on their veteran leadership. We don't know about their cohesiveness because those three guys and Durant, Harden, and Irving have only played seven games together since Harden was brought over from Houston. But but you would think enough veteran leadership, experience, and being able to gel at the right time and get hot may be just enough for a net team to have to go on the road to win a tough game five or even a game seven in Philadelphia for that matter. Because even though the Bucks are two games behind the Sixers in the East, you would think that the Nets will be perched at either one or two and not have to worry about going back as far as three in the standings. And home court in the NBA with the pandemic and even, as I said earlier, with the increase of numbers or increase of attendance come next month, it's still not going to be that much of a home court because as we've seen over the last few years, teams have been able to win game sevens on the road. And it's a whole laundry list I won't even get into. Last year, notwithstanding, because you look at the bubble, a team that was technically on the road, but again, because it was in the bubble, it doesn't have the same presence or outlook as if the game was being played in that home team's building. First one that comes to mind was Denver winning against the Clippers in that seven-game series where they were the road team. But we've seen it throughout the years where teams have been able to go into the opposition's building and win a game seven. But for the Nets, you would think that they'd be fine. Whether they're one or two, I'm sure they'd rather have one. But as it is right now, they are the top seed. So we'll see how that plays out as we get closer to the end of the season. And as I go through both of the conferences, I'll sprinkle in some of the news and notes that have taken place over the past week. Whereas we see right now with the East, I've already mentioned what the top four seeds are looking like, and you want to throw in the Hawks there. I mentioned Trey Young. They are two games and a loss and two games on a hole ahead of the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat, which currently are six and seven, but they are both tied with records of 32 and 29. Celtics here have lost a couple in a row. They've been inconsistent. They had a winning streak last week, if you remember. They had won six in a row, and then now they've lost two games where over the weekend, not only did they lose in Brooklyn, but they also lost down in Charlotte. And Charlotte, right now, they have played pretty well, even without Gordon Hayward, who may be coming back in the next week or so. The same for LaMelo Ball, who fractured his wrist, and a lot of people thought that he was going to be gone for the season. The pretty much the leading candidate for Rookie of the Year. So for Charlotte to get their prized rookie back, hopefully in the next 10 days or so, in LaMelo Ball, and then soon thereafter, the veteran and Gordon Hayward, who knows with the Hornets being able to maybe even move up, creep up a little bit in the standings, knowing that they're just a game and a half behind the Heat and the Celtics. And then even at the bottom, at 9-10, and 10, I mentioned earlier with the Washington Wizards and what they've been able to do here, winning eight in a row. Now they put themselves a two-game advantage ahead of the Chicago Bulls in the Eastern Conference 
And right now, Washington, they could be a dangerous team. You have that backcourt of Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. But who knows? Is this run going to put them at a point where they're going to run out of gas at the end of the year? Or even worse, get to the playing games and run out of gas then? Remains to be seen. But you would think right now, even the Raptors are two games back. They're tied with the Bulls there for the 11 seed. But it's looking right now as if the top 10 seeds in the East are pretty much what we see there. It's just a matter of who's going to end up where. And as we've said time after time, you want to be in the top six. You want to stay away from the 7 through 10 because you don't want to have to add those extra games to your playoff plate, so to speak. Even if you are Indiana and Washington, which you understand because those two teams are just lucky to be there. As we all know, the format is usually 1 through 8. So with those 9 and 10 teams being able to have an opportunity to thrust themselves into the top 8, I don't want to say they're just happy to be there, but at least they have second life where if you're 7 or 8, maybe not so much if you're Charlotte because they're a young team and looking to kind of get themselves an identity not only for their team, their city, but throughout the league. But if you're Miami, to be 7th, I'm sure that's got to be, and let's call it as we see it, that's a swift kick to the groin. Because this is a team that made it to an NBA final last year, and if they happen to fall seven or even eight for that matter, but let's just say seven right now, knowing the heights that they achieved last year, that to have to play Charlotte in a one-game playoff, because they just need to win the one game, and then they would hold serve at seven, I'm sure they would rather try to get themselves six or higher and not have to play that game. Because with everything that they've experienced this year, with all the injuries and COVID and trying to get their season on track, that's the last likely scenario that Eric Spolster and company want to put themselves into. So we'll keep an eye on that. And that pretty much sets up your East, where out West, you have Utah still without Donovan Mitchell. Don't know his status. Again, it's uncertain as to when he's going to return. But they pretty much held a two-game lead here, which seems like forever, over the Phoenix Suns. But then now the Suns have hit a little bit of an abutment here on their season because after playing the Knicks tonight, they have their rematch against the Clippers, where if you remember a couple of weeks ago where the Suns and Clippers met up in L.A., where there was a lot of chirping at the end of the game, as said by a one Paul George, So they reacquaint themselves where there's no love lost between those two franchises. And that's going to be interesting because the Clippers right now are even in the standings, although percentage points ahead are the Suns, where the Clippers could look to get a two seed in the conference, which would give them home court if the season were to end, let's say, by the end of the week and if the Clippers do get that advantage, which would help out the Clippers more than the young Suns. And the Clippers, we all know the baggage that they have and their postseason trials and tribulations, not making it to a conference final ever in their franchise's history. And that's something that they'd have to worry about for round two, but that's one thing that we could spotlight and look ahead to with that game upcoming, and I believe that game is going to be decisive. That's their third and final matchup this year, and they've split the first two games this year. So when we look at the tiebreakers, and if both teams end with the same record at the end of the year, Whoever wins that game come Wednesday night is going to be your number two seed in the Western Conference. And then there are the Lakers. 
And I'll skip Denver for now because they're pretty much going to be entrenched, you would think, in the four seed because they now have a four-game advantage over the Lakers who are fifth in the Western Conference. But with Anthony Davis coming back and playing limited minutes, he shot two for ten in his return, four points, wasn't really much of a factor in a game against Dallas. And the Mavericks have played well to the point where now they put themselves in the top six, as we talked about before and even last week with Luka Doncic's comments and even Mark Cuban following up on the playing tournament saying that it doesn't make sense and it's an enormous mistake by the league. But right now they put themselves in a spot where although they're tied in the loss column with the Portland Trailblazers, but they do have a game and a half advantage, or as you say, they have two games in the loss, so they do have a little bit of cushion there. But with the Lakers... As I've said before, and I'll say again, once you have LeBron and Anthony Davis back, especially for game one in the Western Conference quarterfinals, if they're in the lineup healthy and ready to go, not only are they going to be the team to be reckoned with out West, but they're, in all, for all intents and purposes, they're going to be the team that's going to go back to an NBA final. And I understand they may be hobbled. They're not going to be 100%. And if they get past a tough first round, whether it's against the Denver Nuggets or wherever they may fall in the standings, even if they fall to the sixth seed and maybe they play the Suns or Clippers in the first round, it's going to be a tall order. But would anybody doubt the Lakers not going back to a final if those guys are primed and ready to go come the middle of May? I wouldn't bet against them. So until LeBron gets back and the Lakers are whole and healthy, Forget about what their record is or where they are in the standings because you could just scrap that and throw it in the garbage. And I know that LeBron here in the last week has come under fire with the tweet about accountability, the hashtag, and you're next to the officer that shot the 15-year-old girl in Columbus, Ohio. Terrible story, as we all know. And this is coming off the heels of the Derek Chauvin verdict, where, as we all know, guilty on all charges. Thankfully, there wasn't any consequences and repercussions In the aftermath, as I talked about last week with the potential of what the verdict could have been if it went the other way, not only throughout sports, but of course this country. But LeBron coming under some flack with that tweet where he didn't get all the facts right. He jumped the gun and was a little overzealous in putting that tweet out and he did follow that up with an apology. But of course, anything LeBron does is going to be scrutinized and magnified times a thousand and people getting on his case and You got people from the right side getting all over LeBron and trying to dunk on him in that regard. And it's like, please, you know, those people, they just need to find something else to do. And I'm not a LeBron apologist by any stretch, but at the same time, they just need to shut up and not even get on this case and worry about more important things than that. But as we round out the West, Portland, as I said earlier, two games and a loss behind the Mavericks. And then you have Memphis, San Antonio, and Golden State. They're all separated by a game and a half. Now, we don't have to worry about the Pelicans. They are four and a half games behind, and their season is pretty much out to sea. But it'll be interesting to see. Even Dallas, you want to throw them in there because they have the sixth seed, and as we've seen time after time, things could change in a heartbeat. But we'll see between Portland, Memphis, San Antonio, and Golden State, where do they fall among the 7 through 10 in the Western Conference because who knows? You may have Golden State, if they're able to inch up a little closer to get a 7 or 8 seed, they have to avoid, or they will avoid, having that 9-10 scenario where it's pretty much a 1-and-done before you move on to the 
next round, which would be the winner of the 7-8 and eight game. And I said this last week, I'll say it again. I'm not a fan of this play-in tournament. We get that the season, with it being condensed because of COVID and wanting to add a new wrinkle, which is good in this regard because you have teams like Golden State and San Antonio, as I mentioned in past podcasts, where those two teams, a lot of people, even the casual sports fan, knows who the Golden State Warriors are, even the San Antonio Spurs are. So maybe they'll be intrigued to watch that game whenever the first playoff sets of games will take place after the regular season. But to me, they're going to be sacrificial lambs to the ones and two seeds in each of those conferences. And it's not to say Golden State, they're going to lay down or they're not going to put forth a fight if they do make it as an eight seed and play the Utah Jazz. And Utah's unproven, as I've said time after time, but we'll see when it all shakes down at that time. And that's pretty much your NBA here, people, to kick us off. And one sad note where Terrence Clark, the guard from Kentucky, was killed in an automobile accident. A guy who was from the Boston area, knew a lot of the Celtics, Coach Brad Stevens, and a kid that looked like he was going to have a lot of promise going to take the next step into the league. Just a sad state of affairs there and just the events of what took place taking the life of a young kid who don't know all the details about it, but just seeing a prospect that Still had his whole life ahead of him. No longer here. So thoughts, prayers, and condolences go out to the Clark family. And also one other thing on the court. I know that kid from Orlando, Devin Kennedy, who suffered that gruesome ankle injury. I didn't watch it. I'm not into even wanting to partake or even view those type of injuries. I've seen too many to last 50 lifetimes. He was carried off in a stretcher. So hope his recovery is speedy to say the least. And that took place yesterday in a game against Indiana. As I said earlier, Indiana right now nine in the Eastern Conference looking to get themselves in position to play in the postseason. All right, I'm going to keep it with the winter sports. I'm going to keep it here only because we want to try to get ourselves geared up and ready for the postseason. And we're still a couple of weeks away where the NHL right now, they're down to single digits, unless you're the Vancouver Canucks, of course where the end is in sight. A lot of these teams are looking forward to the end of the regular season to get themselves back on the beam. Seemed like yesterday that we just started the postseason and a run for the 2020 Stanley Cup. Well, get ready, people, because about May 8th, May 9th, around there, the NHL season will end. And the Eastern Conference is front and center at this whole playoff race, and especially the Eastern Division. Now, we've talked time after time that the Central has been... Competitive to say the least. I mean, they have been flip-flopping, jockeying for who's going to be the one seed there. Last week, we talked about how Carolina had the toughest week and pretty much the challenging week of having back-to-back games against Tampa to start the week and then back-to-back games against the Florida Panthers at the end of it, where they came away with the split, so they're still in first place in the Central Division by the slimmest of margins, one point ahead of the Panthers, two points ahead of the Tampa Bay Lightning, but the one thing that's to their advantage, they have a one game in hand against the Lightning and two games in hand against the Panthers. So that could bode well for them down the stretch as they look to get that number one seed in the Central. The number four seed, which is pretty much held right now by Nashville, they're two points ahead of the Stars and five points ahead of the Blackhawks who are starting to fade here. 
And the Blackhawks had one of their players retire in a one Andrew Shaw. A lot of concussions over the years. It was a tough decision by him, especially this late in a season where they do not have their captain and a one Jonathan Taze. Although the future does look bright, where earlier in the week, he did say that his health is improving. He's getting better, not to come back this year, but to be ready for the 2021-2022 season. So although the Blackhawk fan could exhale a little bit, but now they definitely have to wonder if they're going to be part of this postseason mix, considering they're five games behind, they lose another player, they've been skidding here to say the least, and now they look like they're going to be on the outside looking in when it comes to making the postseason. And as I turn my attention to the East, the Islanders had a very interesting week where they had three games, including tomorrow, which would be the third of three against the Capitals. They started off the week well by beating the Rangers, but then now these three games and the two that already have taken place at home against the Capitals didn't bode well. They lost in a shootout there Thursday night where Alexander Ovechkin could not play on Saturday due to a lower body injury. So you would think that may propel the Islanders to at least gain a split. Although they are keeping pace with the Capitals in the division, but they got blown out there on Saturday, even though they inched back, they were down 2 nothing, and then 3-2 before the Capitals took over in 4-3 heading into the final frame. But the Islanders right now are looking at a game in the nation's capital tomorrow, which is a huge game, and then they had the Rangers later on in the week with a home-and-home. Home. Hopefully they put them away because the Rangers are slowly but surely trying to creep up in the standings and get close to the Bruins as far as the fourth spot in the Eastern Division. And funny enough, as I talk about Islanders and Capitals and them being at the top of the leaderboard or top of the standings there in the Eastern Division, as you wake up this morning, neither the Islanders or Capitals are in first place. It is actually the Pittsburgh Penguins. Winners of four straight. They have a one-point lead over the Caps and four points over the Islanders. And remember, the Capitals, or I should say the Penguins, we're 6-2 against the Islanders this year, so they have tiebreakers against them. And then the Penguins and Capitals face off later in the week with a two-game. I don't know if it's a home-and-home home or both games. I believe both games are in Washington, Thursday and Saturday. So those are crucial games, pressure games for the Capitals here. Think about this. They would have finished three games against the Islanders in a row tomorrow, and then they have the Penguins back-to-back right after that. Granted, the games are at home, but still, and who knows when Ovechkin is going to come back. But if there is a silver lining, both the Capitals and Islanders have a game in hand against the Penguins. But that doesn't mean much for the Islanders, like I mentioned, as far as their tie-breaking scenario goes. But the Islanders right now, they have not played well. Kyle Palmieri has not done anything here, especially over these last few games. He did, what, have a power play goal in a Ranger game when he first came over in the trade with the Devils. And Travis Sajak, he's more of a defensive player. But these guys haven't really contributed the way you have liked here right after the deadline so hopefully they have some ground to make up and not only that but also inject some life into their play as the Islanders have I'm not going to say that they've slumped here but they have not played well and with the Bruins just three points behind them and the final game of the season is against the Bruins in Boston for the Islanders so that's one game to keep in mind and then the Rangers are four points behind the Bruins so the Islanders could do themselves a favor by pretty much putting the Rangers out of their misery later on this week. So we'll see how that unfolds. 
And then the Maple Leafs, when we go to the north and what's happening out west, and I call it the west too because even though the divisions are broken down, but when you think about it, a lot of the Canadian teams are out west, whether it's Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, Ottawa, or Vancouver, not Ottawa. Obviously, they're in the eastern time zone. But Toronto with two big wins against Winnipeg who were starting to nip at their heels last week, but they put themselves a nice distance, eight points ahead of them out north, followed by Edmonton and Montreal. Now, the Calgary Flames, they've had a scenario where they've had one person who's in the COVID protocol, but they're going to plow on through. Right now, there doesn't seem to be any other players that have been infected or have contracted COVID, so they're going to march on here. And Calgary, who are four points behind the Montreal Canadiens and trying to get their bearings to get a four seed in the Northern Division. And then out West, very competitive with Vegas, Colorado, and Minnesota. Now, Vegas does have a four-game, or to say a four-point advantage over Colorado, where Minnesota is a point behind Colorado, all separated by five points. Colorado actually has two games in hand with Vegas and Minnesota. And Minnesota has actually won seven in a row, so let's see if they can continue their streak. That's to my guy, Headstyle, out in the Twin Cities. And then in the four seed, it's going to be between Arizona and St. Louis. The Coyotes have a one-point lead over the Blues, and the Blues have three games in hand, so they definitely have an advantage for them to get themselves and no excuses. They have destiny in their own hands if they want to make it as a four seed in the Western Conference. And then you have pretty much everything else after that. San Jose, LA, and Anaheim. The California teams, they're pretty much done for their years, barring a miracle. And that's what you got there with the NHL. I know the young kid from the Panthers played in his first game, Spencer Knight, the goalie who was a hero there against the Canadian team in the junior championships just a few months ago. And then for BC and Boston College, who is now a finalist for the Hobie Baker Award for the best college player. Now, you don't expect him to get a lot of burn here with Sergei Bobrovsky, the number one goalie, but for all intents and purposes, going to be the future goalie of this organization moving forward, even with Bobrovsky being the number one signed through the year, I believe 2024-25. So you may not even see him until then unless they trade him or do something, but that's for down the road. But to have a kid who is pretty much a star in the making and winning his first victory against Columbus. That's just another threat there in the central division for the Carolina Panthers and, or I should say the Carolina Hurricanes. I'm thinking of the football team, the Hurricanes and the Tampa Bay Lightning for them to contend with. So that's what we got there with the NHL. And we'll keep our eyes on that as we're down to the final couple of weeks of their season. And I figured I'd just put the NBA and NHL together because then now I can move on to baseball, the draft, college football, MMA, and even the Kentucky Derby as we close out this podcast. So let me segue that to the baseball because a lot has happened here over the last week. You've had some very interesting storylines and pretty much just over the weekend itself. Forget about just this past week. And the highlight of the week was what took place at Dodger Stadium over the weekend where the Padres had hosted the Dodgers the weekend before where the Dodgers won two thrilling games there on Friday and Saturday night and then you had to come from behind there in the late innings on Sunday to salvage that three-game series down at Petco Park. Well, now as they go up the five to LA where the Padres were able to take the first two games 
including the Friday night where Fernando Tatis Jr., who looks like he's 100% from that shoulder injury that he suffered there a couple of weeks back. Remember, a lot of people thought that the shoulder couldn't need surgery. They opted out to go the route of rest for him to rehab that way. And it's coming up all sevens because with the display that Tatis had, not only Friday night against Clayton Kershaw, but then Saturday night against Trevor Bauer with two more home runs and then a home run in yesterday's game, five home runs in the three games against the Dodgers to the point where even Trevor Bauer came out and said that he was all for the celebrations by Tatis Jr. If you recall, if you watched the highlight, after the first home run he hit, he rounded the first base and he turned to the Padre dugout with one eye covered. If you recall, Bauer was bragging about how he's pitching to batters with one eye closed. So that was a little jab at the Dodger starter. And hey, he was up for the challenge. He was all for it. Feels like it's good for baseball. And that's good on Bauer's part. He didn't become sour or didn't turn the cheek on that. So you got to give him credit for him coming out and praising Tatis or at least tipping his cap to Tatis with the home runs. But the game there yesterday was the highlight because down 7-1 in the game and a furious comeback. And I know a lot of Dodger fans scratching their heads this morning with the managing of Dave Roberts. And you're going to see this time and time again. And we've seen this before with Dave Roberts where, you know, not moving runners over in the extra innings where especially I believe it was in the 10th inning having Clayton Kershaw bunt. I don't know why he didn't choose anybody else off the bench to pinch hit in that regard. But then you also had a scenario there in the ninth inning where the game was tied. It was 7-5 to in the ninth inning and then the Padres scored two runs. They used Kenley Jansen the day before for, I believe, 23 pitches, an inning and a third. So they had Jimmy Nelson come in to try to close out and split the series. But he wasn't able to do the job. And then on top of that, in that ninth inning, Austin Barnes leads off with a single. Edwin Rios comes up. So instead of bunting him to get over to the top of the lineup where you have Mookie Betts and Corey Seager waiting. What does he do? He pops up and then Betts and Seager don't do anything where if you would have sacrificed the runner over to second and flipped the order to the top, you have a better chance of getting an opportunity to score there. So a lot of people think that Roberts didn't make the right move to bunt at that point. And rightfully so, he should have done that, but that's a thing of the past. Baseball isn't played like that anymore, sadly because of the damn sabermetrics and the analytics of the game and then you also had a scenario there in the 10th inning or I believe in the 11th inning when the Padres scored to where we all know the situation you're going to start the inning with a runner on second and then I believe there was a walk I forgot what the battle was but then both Tatis Jr. and the number two hitter I forgot who it was off the top of my head it may have been Manny Machado but they both Attempted a double steal, were successful. And instead of walking Hosmer to pitch to Jake Cronenworth afterwards and then Tommy Pham, what does he do? He pitches to Hosmer, righty-lefty, where you could have gotten a righty-righty to pitch to Cronenworth. And then what happens? Sacrifice fly, run scores, 8-7, and that's how the Padres win in extra innings, as I said, when they were down 7-1. So the Dodger fans upset this morning as they let the Padres come back a little bit closer in the division. The Padre fan is flying high after not only losing two out of three to the Dodgers, but getting swept by the Milwaukee Brewers at home during the week and then now going up the coast to win three out of four against their rivals. 
and they're not really rivals just yet, but you figure with the improvements that they made this offseason, the Padres that is, and then of course the Dodgers bringing in Bauer, it just heightens the quote-unquote rivalry. So you had a very entertaining seven games between those two franchises and especially what took place over the weekend. So that pretty much highlights a lot of the baseball there. And just look at yesterday. You had that game. You had the A's going for 14 straight. This is a team that started off 0-6 and 1-7 and and they won 13 straight before losing to the Orioles in Baltimore yesterday. So kudos to the A's and what they've been able to do. I was going to take them as an under this year for my over-unders, if you recall, but I didn't because... Even though I thought in the back of my mind, nobody knows this ace team. Yes, they're resourceful. Yes, they're kind of like built. And this is an insult when you say in this regard, like the Rays, because as we all know, Billy Bean and Moneyball was pretty much born and raised in the Bay Area, especially with the Oakland A's. So that would be insulting to them considering they're the masterminds behind this. But as we all know, it gets them nowhere in the postseason. But the A's have done very well here over the last two weeks to get themselves close to the top because the Seattle Mariners are pretty much right there with them in the AL West. But also yesterday, what in the hell happened to the Braves' offense? Now, they had to play a doubleheader because of a rainout, I believe, on Friday. Or maybe it was Saturday, I don't know. But they had to play two games, and we all know seven-inning doubleheaders, which... I'm not crazy about. I can understand last year you do that for 60 games. But for an 162-game season, they could have gone back to the nine-inning games. You understand we live in a COVID world and so on and so forth. And you don't want to extend these games. I know the runner on second I don't like anymore. Last year you could do it. I get it. But this year, uh uh-uh. They should have scrapped that. But back to the games yesterday. So they went up the brave offense against Zach Gallen, who's a good young pitcher. And Madison Bumgarner, remember him? Yes, that Madison Bumgarner of San Francisco Giants legend. What the Brave offense was able to do over the course of 14 innings and against just those two pitchers was one measly hit by Freddie Freeman in the sixth inning of game one against Zach Gallen. One hit over 14 innings? To the tune where, that's right, Madison Bumgarner pitched a no-hitter yesterday, but it doesn't count. Because if you remember the name Melito Perez, yes, Yankee fans remember him because not only did he pitch for the Yankees because George Steinbrenner wanted to have him on his team because years prior to that, he no-hit the Yankees over seven innings to where the game had to be called off for rain. And as we know, once you get past the top of the fifth inning, the game is going to count in the standings. And with the White Sox, whatever lead that they had at the time, and with the Yankees being no-hit, It went in the books as a no-hitter for Melito Perez. But later that year, Major League Baseball instituted the rule that if you're going to pitch a no-hitter, it has to be done over the course of nine innings and not seven innings. So that eradicated the no-hitter for one Melito Perez. But here's the problem I have with that. Because baseball implemented these double-headers for seven innings, why is it Madison Bumgarner's fault that he doesn't get credited for a no-hitter? It's not as if the game was suspended because of rain or Mother Nature or the lights went out or whatever it is. This is an official game. So I understand it's not a nine-inning game. I get that it's not going to go on the books, obviously, as a no-hitter. But because of the rules that Major League Baseball instituted to have these double-headers shortened to seven innings, why can't that count to a no-hitter? Yes, there has to be an asterisk next to it if it did count because, again, it's only seven innings. 
And chances are, Baumgartner, I don't know how many pitches he had thrown up until that point, but he probably, who knows, if he was within distance of getting it, if it went into the 8th and ninth inning, I'm sure he probably would have gutted it out and done so. But the bottom line is, is that it's not Baumgartner's fault because Major League Baseball instituted a 7-inning doubleheader, so he should get credit for that. And right, it's not a 9-inning Traditional no-hitter, understood, but Major League Baseball, I'll tell you. These rules, and I'm already over it with the doubleheaders, the seven innings, and the same for the extra inning deal. I get that they don't want to have 18-inning doubleheaders in light of what's going on in this country with the coronavirus, but maybe they should push that up, maybe into the 12th inning, or... Later, maybe 13th. I will say 12th. 10th inning's too soon. Let them go into the 10th, even to the 11th. And if you want to get to the 12th inning, all right, fine, so be it. But I tell you, I'm already over these rules. But thankfully, we've had some juice here early on in this baseball season to where we had the great pitching matchup on Saturday night between Garrett Cole and Shane, don't call me Justin Bieber, where both pitchers were phenomenal, where Garrett Cole, seven innings, One run, three hit ball, 11 strikeouts. And Shane Bieber for the same seven innings, nine strikeouts, two runs. But the two runs were given up on two home runs. Pitches to Aaron Hicks and Ronette Odor was the key to the Yankees winning three out of four in Cleveland. And speaking of pitching performances, Friday night, City Field, the guy is superhuman right now. Not only is Jacob DeGrom pitching to a 0.3 ERA, but he pitches a complete game shutout, two hits, no walks, and 15 strikeouts. I mean, are you kidding? And not only that, I talked about how this guy never gets any help from the offense. He gets no run support. The guy even has to do that because in the bottom of the fifth inning where there was no score, he had to get the first run on the board with a double to the opposite field. And then thankfully there was uh, an infield hit by Brandon Nimmo, which plated the other two runs, which gave Jake a little bit of a cushion. But to think, this guy not only has to pitch the zeros across the board, but now he has to even come to the plate and drive in runs in the process. And I believe he's batting 545. I mean, what more can this guy do? I mean, geez. But DeGrom is just on another planet right now with the way he's been pitching. And just like I said last week with Shane Bieber, 48 strikeouts to his first four starts. Well, guess what? Jacob DeGrom said, yeah, hold my four-seam fastball because now he has 50 strikeouts in the first four games. And that's the last three games alone are 14, 14, and 15. So Met fans are rejoicing with that. But even though winning two out of three over the weekend, nine and eight in the NL East isn't going to get you all warm and fuzzy if you're a Met fan. Yes, you're in first place. Yes, we can be a little bit excited, but 9-8? and eight? Come on, we could be a little bit better than that. But And then also the other news real quick in baseball is that the union and the league met on Tuesday to discuss a possible new collective bargaining agreement. Now, the one question you have to ask yourself, is this a sign of good things to come? I'm not going to say it's the case. I'm not going to be all 
anxious and all excited to think that a CBA could be hammered out between now and the end of the year. I'm sure it was just a meeting at the table just to kind of get a pulse of what's going on and what's happening. I think that's good. But to me, that doesn't mean that they're going to be all kumbaya and it's going to be all coconuts and palm trees to try to get this deal taken care of over the next few months or certainly by the end of this baseball season. So, yes, although it could raise an eyebrow to say, wow, they're meeting this early. But to me, until I get official word that, yes, a CBA has been signed, sealed and delivered for the next whatever, five, eight, ten years, then that's when I could say, wow, they actually got it done and avoided the Armageddon that I've said time after time after time, which seems like for the last year plus. So we'll keep our eyes on that as we move along. And with the league itself, you know, I'm not going to get crazy about going through standings and things of that nature. The one thing you do look at and raise an eyebrow at is the AL Central, where the Royals, who a lot of people thought were going to be good this year, and they're showing improving so far after 20 games with a 13-7 and record, and the White Sox have turned it around a little bit. They're 12-9. and So they've been a pleasant surprise to kick us off here in this first month of the season. And... Other than that, San Francisco Giants have played well. They've been a very big surprise. They're just a game behind the Dodgers right now. And then disappointments. I mean, what could you say? Nationals were expected to be a lot better to start off the season. Even the Braves, 9-12. and And as I talked about their offensive woes, the only guy that's hit on the team is Ronald Acuna Jr. Everybody else, and they have a good offense. Austin Riley, we know about the reigning MVP and Freddie Freeman. Ozzie Albies, who was hurt, but now is back in the lineup. Uh, They got guys that can rake. But they have... Oh my goodness, one hit over 14 innings against two pitchers that, listen, Gallon is a good up-and-coming pitcher, Bumgarner, who I would think has seen better days, but could come up with performances like that, but geez, Braves need to wake up here, and uh, you want to say the Astros have been a little bit of disappointment, they have, or the Twins have been terrible, so you got to throw them in the mix, 7-13, and and uh, that's pretty much what we got there with the baseball. Now, let me turn my attention to the NFL because I know everybody's now all geeked up and primed and ready for the NFL draft this Thursday in Cleveland where they're going to expect fans. I don't know where they're holding the draft, if it's going to be in the stadium itself. Are they going to allow the fans to go into the stadium and have everything set up there? Of course, they got to worry about weather. I know in years past, you've seen in Philadelphia where they had it, I believe, in the, I don't know if it was Love Park or by the... Art Museum in Philadelphia where they had it covered. I believe it was maybe the Art Museum. Same for Nashville where they had the covering. And I believe it even rained that night a couple of years back. Well, Cleveland is going to be the focal point of the draft this year. The draft right now, when we look at how it's taking into shape, it's pretty much not going to start until you get to, I would say, the seventh or eighth pick. Because the first four picks, I think, are going to be pretty much predictable. Maybe in the first seven. We know the quarterbacks are going to be taken. Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence. The Jets are going to take the BYU quarterback, Zach Wilson. The third pick overall, San Francisco 49ers, as they moved up. They're going to take, from what I've been reading now recently, it's going to be Mac Jones out of Alabama. So Justin Fields, where I said last week, he could be the guy that's going to plummet a little bit, a la Aaron Rodgers of 2015. Because with the... Falcons then picking at four, and who knows if they're going to pick an offensive player. Will they even dare to pick the tight end out of Florida and Kyle Pitts to go with Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and Matt Ryan for one last gasp to try to get themselves 
back into the playoff mix and maybe even to a Super Bowl. Highly unlikely. But to me, they need to get some defensive help in the worst way. The Bengals at five, you know that they need to pick an offensive lineman to protect their prize quarterback and a one, Joe Burrow. Although some of these mock drafts, if you want to go by those, and I don't, they're thinking maybe Jamar Chase to get that home run hitter, that weapon for Joe Burrow because T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, although good wide receivers, but not electric, not a guy that's going to be a threat every time they step on the field. You could also throw in Jalen Waddell. You want to throw in Devontae Smith. But Jamar Chase and some of these mock boards may be going to Cincinnati, but I would take the tackle out of Oregon, Panay Sewell. That's a guy that you could just put in left tackle to protect Joe Burrow for the rest of his career, and away we go. But when looking at this draft, even after that, the Lions have come out and said that they're going to entertain offers and see if they could have another team move up to maybe even get that quarterback, whether your name is Justin Fields or even the other kid, Trey Lance from North Dakota State. So the Lions are looking to see if they can wheel and deal a little bit here. And pretty much after that, it's a free-for-all. It's going to be very predictable at the top. Now, who knows who's going to trade up to four. Atlanta, like I said, has offered to dangle their pick to somebody who's willing to take it and obviously give up a boatload of picks in the process. But we'll just have to wait and see. And me, I don't have a mock draft. I'm not going to sit here and go through all 30 picks or 32 picks. It's senseless and useless. You know, I'm not that guy that's going to sit here. I understand the NFL fan wants to know if they listen to Jay Reels and are listening now. Come on, Jay Reels, tell me who the Giants are going to take or even your Steeler fan, who are they going to take? And I'll get into that in a second, but right to go through all 32 picks, I mean, give me a break. Now, the Ravens, they made a trade with the Chiefs as the Chiefs acquire Orlando Brown Jr., which was a very odd deal only because Baltimore and Kansas City, competition in the conference, we know that the Chiefs need offensive help in the worst way, especially when it comes to the line. Why would they help the Chiefs in that regard? All right, they get the Chiefs' 31st pick overall. They get a second-round pick, or excuse me, they get a third-round pick and a fourth-round pick, and I believe a second-round pick next year. All right, so they get a bunch of picks, but if Brown's going to help Patrick Mahomes, and we know that the Ravens have not been able to get over the hump when it comes to playing the Chiefs and Lamar Jackson, and we've seen that here over the last couple of years, then why would they make a trade like that is beyond me. But I'm not going to sit here and go through every pick. But as far as the Steelers, real quick, I know all the talk is about the running back, whether it's going to be Najee Harris from Alabama or even Travis Etienne from Clemson. You could even go offensive line here. If you're the Steelers, if you'd like, because Villanueva, who's now, I believe, is going to sign with the Ravens, and he had a terrible year last year, and we know Pouncey's gone, and they pretty much have to piecemeal this line because they need to keep Ben Roethlisberger upright if they're going to have any success next year. So to me, running backs you can get in later rounds, as you've seen, they have not been successful over the last couple of years, whether your name is Benny Snell, whether your name is Anthony McFarlane, and McFarlane didn't get much of a shot last year, but... Who knows, maybe he could take that leap. Whether the Steeler brass thinks that McFarlane is going to be the answer, who knows, remains to be seen. But if they were to get Harris, that's a guy, if he's on their board, and maybe they could hope and pray to get an offensive lineman in the second round, then they have to do it. Because if you watch those Steeler games last year, especially in the second half of the season, they couldn't run the ball to save their lives. And they barely made it into the postseason. I can't say barely, because they started off 11-0, but... We know their 
postseason was short-lived, and not because of the running game. Obviously, it was the turnovers, but those last four or five games, they couldn't run a lick, and they need to have somebody to run the ball, but they also need somebody to block too, so it's going to be interesting as to what the Steelers may choose here come Thursday night, and I'll dissect it all next week and see how, especially these first early rounds, go between Thursday night and Friday, have rounds two and three, and then four through seven on Saturday. So that is your NFL draft stuff. As far as anything else with the league, speaking of the Steelers, Mike Tomlin received a three-year extension, so he signed on through 2024. I know some Steelers fans may not be happy about that, but the one question I have for that Steelers fan is, well, who did you want? I'm waiting. Still waiting. All right, I thought so. And then Tom Brady had to chime in with this number rule change, which I know is going to be a little bit weird this year. But I know his comments, good luck trying to block the right people now. It's going to make for a lot of bad football. We don't know that. So what? So somebody that's going to blitz, that's wearing the number three, I mean, that's going to throw him off when it comes to trying to read a defense before the snap of the play? I mean, uh, listen, he's Tom Brady. We understand seven Super Bowls, et cetera. We get it. Goat. But I don't think that's going to be neither here nor there. But it is going to be weird because, for example, Patrick Peterson, the longtime Cardinal, is now a Minnesota Viking. He's changing his number from 21 to 7. So you're going to have corners. And remember, a lot of these corners in college. Charles Woodson, he wore number 2 in college. Dion wore number 2 in college. I'm sure some of these other cornerbacks are going to probably switch to single digits, especially if they had that number in college. And, of course, if the number's available. So uh, a little bit interesting, but at the same time, We'll see what that uh, looks like when we get uh, into the preseason and obviously when the season starts, which is well, well down the road. And one thing about college football real quick I want to throw in is that they're looking to have discussions about expanding the playoff format. As we all know, it's four games or I should say two games, four teams. Now, they don't know whether it's going to be six, eight, 10, 12. I get they probably want to start slow and maybe go up to six. I think, why not eight? Because there's always going to be that team or two that's going to be, let's say if they moved up to six, there's always going to be that one team that's going to be seven or eight ranked and could be a smaller school or a mid-major that's not going to make it, whether you're a Coastal Carolina or a team like BYU where they may not be in the mix if they're going to, Increase the playoff teams to six teams. Just do it as eight and have whatever you want to rank it. One, eight, two, seven, three, four, or three, six, and four, five. That's probably the best way to do it. And I get that the team that's from the mid-major or the small school, if they go up against Alabama in the, in the first round as a one-eight game, I know that could be ugly and probably will be ugly, but... Just saying that school made it to the top eight, it's going to bring a lot of money to that school and a lot of money to that game. And all you could do is just clap your hands. But it's very early. We'll see how this all unfolds. But I think if they're going to increase it, me personally, just go to eight. Don't go to six. Why just go up two? You can understand why they go from two to four. So just double that. Don't make it six. Only because you want to get more Cinderella teams or give that smaller school more of a chance to make it into that playoff as opposed to just giving it to two more teams. So start with eight, and then maybe down the road you can increase it to 12 or even to 16 for that matter. But me personally, I think eight would be just fine. 
All right, now let me wrap it up with two quickies here. We have the Run for the Roses, the Kentucky Derby, where it belongs. If you remember last year, it was September 5th, the Saturday before Labor Day, of course, due to COVID, having to postpone and then move it up then. And it did get forgotten a little bit only because nobody was expecting a Kentucky Derby to be run in September. But with the Belmont Stakes last year being the first leg of the Triple Crown on June 20th, where it says the law won, and a lot of momentum for Tis the Law at the time to be a triple crown threat to follow up what American Pharaoh did a few years ago. But with the layoff from June 20th to September 5th was not good enough for Tis the Law. If you recall, he lost to Authentic and Bob Baffert, who is the longtime trainer and well-known legendary trainer of these horses and has a big horse coming up in this race now. The rest of the field, or I should say the rest of the race season that year, pretty much went up in smoke after that Kentucky Derby. Because then the Preakness, which I couldn't even tell you who won the Preakness right now, and I believe that was in November when the Preakness ran. But now that we have some normalcy in the sports world and that we're able to look forward to a Kentucky Derby where it belongs on the first Saturday of May, where the 147th running of this race will have... Horses such as Hot Rod Charlie, Rocket World. I know the horse that Bob Baffert has or is training is Medina Spirit. So a lot of people may focus in on that horse to be recognized as the best in the sport. But with Hot Rod Charlie at 6-1 to one being the favorite right now and Rocket World 8-1 to one, similar to Medina Spirit. We'll take a look at and keep an eye on those horses as we head into the weekend. Of course, a lot can change between now and then. You could get a horse scratched. We get that a lot of these horses want to make it into this field to move themselves up two weeks to the Preakness and then three weeks after that for the Belmont. So we'll keep our eyes on this first race, which is the most famous of the three. We all understand the pop and circumstance, which you didn't have last year with very little fans at the track. And this year, they're expecting an upwards of 40 to 50% of capacity. Now, I don't know if that's for the whole building, for the grandstand, because the Churchill Downs could hold up to 100,000 people. And I don't think it'd be wise to get 40 to 50,000 people into that building. All right, they're going to have to wear masks and abide by the protocols. That goes without saying. But at the same time, to have that many people together... With the outfits, the suits, the dresses, the derbies, the hats. We all know what the Kentucky Derby is all about. It's about who's going to be seen, who's going to be noticed. All the pre-race hype. And that pretty much is like the red carpet that takes place before the actual event. So who knows how that's going to shake down. And I'm sure the country and the public or society may keep an eye on that. As far as the health officials go, but... We'll see. Kentucky Derby getting started. We'll certainly recap it and talk about it this time next week. And then lastly, the MMA where you had Kamaru Usman in a rematch with Jorge Masvidal beat him by knockout. And we talked about Usman a couple of months ago where he extends now his record winning streak where it was held by George St. Pierre in the same class as a welterweight where he won 13 in that division now he's at 14 beating Masvidal there I know the one highlight that you're going to see if you haven't seen already in this one I stumbled by accident through social media was the 
kid Chris Weidman, where 17 seconds into the match, he kicked at his opponent and you could just hear his leg snap like a twig and I don't even need to go into it. So he had two gruesome injuries, the one in the NBA earlier with the kid, Devin Kennedy for the Magic, and then you had this there on Saturday night. And I've never been a UFC fan. I talk about it here from time to time. I actually know somebody who is well in tune with UFC, and I'm going to have him on the podcast at some point in the very near future because I know that that's a sport that everybody gravitates to now. UFC is all the rage. Boxing is pretty much on life support. And with the UFC, where we have a lot of these events here, it seems week after week after week, and to have a guy like Usman put forth this streak here is very impressive. I still can't wrap my arms around the sport because... Listen, boxing, we all know it's barbaric just like football and some of the other sports that we've seen over the years, but uh, I just can't come to watch it. It just doesn't excite me for whatever the reason. And yes, it is gruesome. It is bloody. It is It is what it is. But yours truly just has been unable to either connect or plug into a sport that has just blossomed and has been so popular over the last decade plus years that I haven't jumped on that bandwagon. And I'm not trying to be a contrarian or traditionalist in that regard, but I just haven't. I don't know what else to say, people. But I have to keep my fingers on the pulse and inform you guys and give you my two cents, even if I'm not well-versed on it. But like I said, in the weeks to come, I do have someone in mind to bring onto the podcast. So be sure to keep you posted with that as we move along. So let me get to my hero and zero of the week to close out. My hero of the week... And why not? Alex Smith, the former quarterback of the Washington football team, Kansas City Chief, San Francisco 49ers, calls it a career. We understand it didn't probably end the way he wanted to. He brought his team back from the dead in a very inept NFC East to the tune of a 7-9 record, but he was 5-1 in the games that he started, including a big win at Pittsburgh to break their 11-0 start. But Alex Smith, and we all know what he's endured just to get back onto the football field, has been well-documented, but... As he goes off into the sunset, all the best to him. Just a, what could you say? I mean, the guy just came back pretty much from hell and then some just to get back on the football field and play and be effective in his return. So kudos to the next stage of your career and your life, Mr. Alex Smith. You are my hero of the week. And my zero of the week goes to the Las Vegas Raiders. For tweeting, I can breathe after the verdict of Derek Chauvin this past Tuesday, putting forth their message in light of what took place there in Minneapolis and everybody, including yours truly, destroyed that tweet. How could you do that? Obviously very insensitive. We know that you can't bring George Floyd back even with the verdict and to put that out there. And granted that Give credit to George's brother, Philanese. He actually supported the tweet, but still, not a good look. Even if they were trying to send the right message or say the right thing and trying to pump life, uh, for lack of a better word, into this verdict. But still, just a terrible taste by the Raiders. So they are my zero of the week. And that'll do it. Episode 191, just about in the books. As always, people, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day and out of your podcast listening, and I'm sure you listen to a ton of them to listen to what it is that I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And as I say each and every week, and usually at the very top, as I'm sure you've heard, unless you skipped it, but 
to help promote the growth and expansion of this podcast by yours truly, please subscribe, rate, review on wherever you get your podcast. You know the drill. Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, uh, Overcast, Amazon Music, you name it. Just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there so I can attract the former or current athlete, the broadcaster, writer, blogger, studio host, you name it, so I could get them on the podcast so they can in turn share their experiences on the field, in the press box, in the broadcast booth, in the studio. So I could do that twice a week. As we all know, I'm here each and every Monday, but I want to put forth that second podcast on Thursday. And the way to get the visibility increased is to play your part and subscribe, rate, review. If you could do that, I'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to hit me up with a text or DM, an email, you could do so by hitting me up on Twitter at JReels1, just a number, Instagram, JReels, or the JReels Podcast, which is Strictly Sports, Facebook, the JReels Podcast fan page, or an email, the JReels Podcast at gmail.com. Any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it is, just send it my way. I'll be sure to follow up. And if you want to support, and contribute to the podcast as far as the production goes. You could do so at www.patreon.com slash the J Reels Podcast. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy. Patreon, whatever you want to contribute to that, I would sincerely and greatly appreciate it from the bottom of my heart to go towards the production of this podcast, the website, production, equipment, etc. So, whatever you want to contribute, I would. Again, immensely appreciate it because whether you do or do not know people, it is in the blood since birth, in the DNA as I like to call it, to talk about everything that's happening in sports. I love to share my critique, analysis, opinions on everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.